This morning, we want to turn our attention back to Ecclesiastes. Uh, This week, we're going to be in chapter number seven. Once again, this is our third sermon in chapter number seven. I thought we would be in chapter number eight, but the Lord um, brought something to my attention, and we're going to dig in together. Ecclesiastes chapter number seven, and we're going to only read a couple of verses today. Ecclesiastes seven, verse 13, simply declares, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who, pro- who prolongs his life in, in, his, in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Um, This morning, I want to preach from the subject title, A Tough Pill to Swallow. A Tough Pill to Swallow. Let me pray for us. God, I am so excited about uh, this opportunity uh, to get into your word. Um, God, I pray that you would allow us to dig deep in these um, few verses, that you would help us to see clearly um, a, a profound truth. Uh, God, not to just increase our information, not just to increase um, our ability to have uh, conversations about um, an ancient text. But God, help us to get to a place in our lives, God, where we can apply, our tr- apply your truth to our lives. God, we're not here to go through the motions. We're not here, thankfully, to hear from a man, but we are here ultimately, Lord God, to hear from you. God, so I simply request that you would speak to our hearts this morning, that you would give us a clear and concise word. God, help us to have no question about what you're saying, but also, God, help us to be moved. God, to apply the truth, not to just hear the truth, but to be changed in Jesus' name. God, that is our prayer and our request this morning. Amen. Uh, Anyone who knows me well knows that I have what people would consider a sweet tooth. And since my wife knows me best, for my birthday, she got me an assortment of cake slices. She did a thing this past Wednesday, right? Uh, Side note, if you did not call me for my birthday, Stacy, Bob, I want you to know I'm hurt. In all all seriousness, though, my my birthday was a great day because the Lord allowed me to have a great restful day. I I was able to connect with folks who I love and care for deeply. And when I think about uh, what I experienced on my birthday, it is a reminder that we want life to taste good. We want life to be sweet. We want life to be marked by things that are good, life to be marked by things that we enjoy. I mean, who in here today would not sign up for every meal that you have or every experience that you uh, partake in to not be great? Like, who in here would not sign up for every specific food that you were able to put uh, inside of your palate for that food to not make you excited? We all would desire for something to be good to the taste, but the truth of the matter is, 
when we live life and we do life together, and when we walk out this Christian faith, when we walk out um, the journey of faith, we've got to get to a place in our life where we understand that certain things will taste good to us, while other things will taste bad to us, but those things will be good for us. I'll say that very clearly. In your life, you cannot settle simply for the things that taste good to you, but you've got to settle for the things that are good for you. Those things are true, and that is, a true, uh, that is true practically, but it is also true for us in our lives spiritually, especially when we consider how we are to respond to God's Word. There are some passages in Scripture that easily and quickly resonate with our hearts. There are some passages in Scripture that clearly excite our heart because those Scriptures, I would say, taste good to us as they come out of God's Word. I mean, when Galatians 3.26 tells us that we are God's child, it tastes sweet. When Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, it tastes sweet. When Romans 5, chapter, Romans chapter number 5, verse number 6 tells us that I am greatly loved by God, it tastes sweet. There are so many scriptures, uh, there are so many passages that are found that taste sweet. But on the other side of it, there are passages that we come to that are hard to accept. And as we continue reading God's word, as we are are biblical Christians, as we are willing to to embrace the full counsel of God's word, as we seek to be molded and shaped by God's word, we must accept that there are going to be some hard passages that we have to accept. There are going to be some words from God that challenge me. And as we are challenged by God's word, we must remember that when God gives us his word, he never gives, us, he never gives it to us in a reckless or malicious way to hurt us, but God gives us his word to help us, to give us hope, to transform a hard heart. So we must conclude, I cannot stop at the passages that just are sweet to the taste, but I must go to the passages that are hard for me to accept. Here's what I've learned, not as a pastor, but as a follower of Christ. I need a balanced diet spiritually to be transformed into the man that God has called me to be. If I just look at the passages that are, are like the cakes on my birthday, um, Hoosier Girls is a great cake place. Uh, there's also a baker here today, uh, battered and baked. If you need some battered and baked, some, some good uh, cakes, Sister Alexis will take care of you, right? <laughs> But I, I can't skip the passages, right, that, that, that I want to just gloss over and, and, and immediately go to the passages that are sweet to the taste. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I was preaching, and I was like, man, I, I'm, I'm kind of ready to get out of chapter 7. Like, I'm ready to get to chapter 8. I'm ready to, to, to continue to, to finish the passage. But Ecclesiastes 7 gives us a hard word that we must consider. And this morning, I want to encourage you as we study the passage together, the passage may not taste good to you, but I want to promise you that this passage is good for you because the passage reminds us of something significant that God has to say to us. So first, as we study the passage, we must first be reminded of God's rule over our life. God's rule. Verse 13 says, consider the work of God who can make straight what God has made crooked. 
The command in verse 13 is a call to carefully observe the way in which God chooses the work. It is an invitation for us to see how God not simply is in control and not simply sovereign, but it is how God practically rules over our lives. We know from context that Solomon is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, and Solomon was able to observe different seasons of life. He had learned uh, that there was, a point of, there, was, there was an appointed time for all things. Uh, he had watched people work. He had watched people play. He had watched people live. He had watched people die. And here in Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon is reminding us that while we are playing and living, while we are laughing and crying, God is ultimately working in our lives. Uh, sometimes it is, it's hard for us to accept that because we don't see God the way we see people. But I want to encourage you this morning that God is at work even when you cannot see God at work. Uh, on last week, we spoke a little bit about uh, the passage in John uh, 21 where there was the, 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 the disciples were, were returning uh, back to the, their former life before Jesus. They were discouraged. They were, uh, they were failing. They were not able to catch any fish. They were in a place that was really tough and they could not see uh, who this person was on the side of the shore, but God could see them. It is a present day picture that when you are facing failure, when you are facing frustration, A, God can see you, but also God will be with you and God will speak to you. I, I don't know who that's for this morning, but I want to encourage you that, that no matter what season you're going through, no matter how frustrated you are, God is not just, um, not, God is not just in control, but God is there near to you in the hard moments of your life. I love Ecclesiastes 7 because it gives us a rhetorical question that gives us an opportunity to reflect on a deep truth. He says, who has the power to straighten out what God has made crooked? The answer is no one. Uh, things are the way they are in your life because God has ordained them to be that way. Now hear me now. I am not talking about sin. God is not the author of sin. But on last week, we, were, we had to wrestle with the reality that God is not the author of sin, but God is the author of adversity in your life. The day of joy... The day of gladness and the day of adversity and pain are all from the same hands from God. I know that no matter, when, no matter where we preach at, no matter when we preach uh, with a room this size, I can assume that there's some people here this morning who you want to straighten out the path that God has made crooked. There's some people here this morning who want to hurry up and get to the, to the destination that God has for them. But the passage is reminding us of God's rule, not just that we know that God is in control, but it's also letting us know that we can trust his plan. When the passage speaks about a crooked um, shape, it's not talking about God being morally out of line. It is saying that God is the author of every turn and change in our lives, that God is in control and sovereign over every aspect in our lives. I love it because it addresses a scenario in a situation where we would want to alter the plan, but God says, no, I have a plan. There's some who are here today who are suffering a breakdown or a crooked relationship in my family or a broken or crooked relationship in my health, a broken, crooked relationship in many different aspects of my life, maybe my finances, maybe my faith. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you that God is able to, to not just 
be in control, but God is able to be trusted as he is in control. I want to encourage you that no matter what season you find yourself in life, we must consider the work of God. And in considering the work of God, we not only are reminded that God is in control, but hear this, we're reminded that God's plan can be accepted. I want to say that very clearly. God's plan for your life, it can be accepted. I'm not saying that you need to accept the sin. I'm not saying that you need to accept the the moments in life where people do you wrong. What I'm saying is God is able to be trusted. God is able to not just be trusted, but we can surrender to his plan so that we are in a position where we're not always trying to change it and amend it and, and redirect it, but I can accept it because he is ultimately in control, but he's also good while he's in control. So first we, must, first we are challenged to consider God's rule, but secondly, we are, we are challenged to consider God's relationship. Verse 15 says, In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. As you read the passage, it just doesn't seem right. The righteous man dies, and the wicked man has a long life. Is that not the opposite of what we learned growing up? Is that not the opposite of what we're taught sometimes in Sunday school? That if you want a long life, if you want to be blessed, if you want to have God's best, you just need to do what God's calling you to do, and then God's going to bless you. On the other side, we, we tell uh, people that, you know, if you sin and you're disobedient to God, you're going to lose your life early. When, when you think about that, that, that thinking, it really does remind us of how even in the church, even in the Christian faith, we have been unfortunately tainted by the idea of karma. When you think about karma, I really do believe that every religion in the world is influenced by karma on some level. When I say religion, I want to say specifically, I'm not talking about Christianity. Religion says if you do good, then good will follow you. If you do bad, then bad will follow you. At the center of karma is this idea of performance. At the center of karma is this idea that if I want to be closer to God, I've got to do something to work my way there. Uh, I would say that Christianity would not fall in this category because Christianity is not a religion. I would say it's a relationship. Now, some people who prescribe to Christianity are, are operating in religion because faith is not personal. Jesus is not real. It's cultural. It's something that we just kind of have accepted because my my mom and my dad have accepted it. So I'm going to just kind of be a cultural Christian. And when you look at it, when you think about people who have truly placed their faith and their trust in Christ, those people don't have religion. They have a relationship. When you think about karma, when you think about this idea of If I put good out, good comes back. If I put bad out, bad comes back. When you look at most world religions, there is an aspect of karma that is intricately woven and connected to their faith-based system. It's not a coincidence that Jehovah's Witness believe that knocking on doors will earn them a special place in the kingdom. Essentially, they're saying, I'm living based upon karma. It's not a surprise that Mormons religiously go on a two-year mission and they think that it will help them become a deity. That essentially is living based upon karma. Uh, It is not a coincidence that that a a Muslim thinks that going on a jihad 
and doing something extreme will get them 72 versions because they are ultimately living life based upon karma. And we can easily accept this as a truth or something negative going on in other religions, but we need to understand that that is not how the gospel has called us to operate. If I were to ask you, do you believe in karma? Most of you would say, absolutely not. I do not believe in karma. That is some kind of uh, uh, Eastern mystic religion. I believe in the gospel. I believe in the Bible. (laughs) That's how we operate, right? But although we quickly confess that we believe the gospel, if we look at our conduct, a lot of times our conduct is totally different. A lot of times as believers, our conduct and our confession don't match. As Christians, we must confess that we believe in God, we believe in grace, we believe in mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is God withholding what you do deserve. Grace has been described as the parent giving uh, the kid the toy on Christmas, even though they are on the naughty list. Uh, the parent giving the child something that they do not deserve is a picture of grace. We also confess our belief in mercy, that mercy is withholding the whooping when you deserve a whooping. Uh, mercy is uh, your parent telling you to go get a switch. And unfortunately, you, you being in, uh, in need of a whooping, and when you get the switch, I'm sorry, when you get the belt. <laughs> There's a lot of y'all who don't even know what that is. So, side note, a switch. Someone older than you would send you outside to get a very flexible tree limb. And you would come back inside and you would get a whooping. I'm not saying that was abuse, but I I wouldn't encourage you to do that today. Not in 2019. Mercy is deserving the whooping with the switch or the belt, and your parents saying, I'm gonna give you not what you deserve, I'm gonna give you what you don't deserve. As Christians, we understand this idea of grace and mercy. And when we reflect on those two things, number one, we got to understand God does not give me what I deserve and God withholds what I do deserve. And when we understand that truth, it totally destroys the idea of karma. If karma was true, no one would go to heaven. Think about that. None of us, I'm about to say none of y'all, none of us (laughs) can live life good enough to deserve and earn an internal relationship with God. So when we think about that truth, we need to understand that my confession directly goes against what karma really is. But sometimes my conduct, my application of that goes totally opposite. Truth of the matter is, many times in the Christian life, we essentially operate based upon karma just like other religions, rather than a growing relationship with Christ. On your job, somebody you don't like gets reprimanded or called out. How do you respond? Should have listened to me. They got what they deserved. Man, they had that coming. Man, they made their bed, they better lie in it. Like, do we not, do we not respond that way? Do we not uh, respond with things like, you know, you, you play with fire, you're gonna get burned. And on the other side of that, let me say something about when something bad happens to somebody who we consider is good. 
If something bad happens to somebody who we have determined is morally righteous, then we lose our mind because we cannot fathom something bad happening to a really good person. In the text, Solomon is telling us that karma is inconsistent with the scriptures because we don't have a religion that instructs us to take steps closer to God, but we have a relationship that invites us into the family of God. So first, we hear something about God's rule. Secondly, we hear something about God's relationship. And then thirdly, we hear something about God's standard for righteousness. Verse 16 says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Read that again. Be not overly righteous. Don't be super spiritual. Don't make yourself too wise. When we read verse 16, there is a great uh, group of us who are thinking, yes, finally he's preaching on something that I'm doing really good. (laughs) I can do that. Not be too righteous? I can do that. If, if life was, uh, if passing life was like a test on not being too righteous, oh, I'm AP, All-American, like I, I got that down, right? I mean, if you read it, as you read it, it's almost as if it's saying, verse 16 is concluding or sounding like righteousness should be taken in moderation. Like, like don't be overly righteous, Okay, I want to pause here because like, we, we need to really understand what the passage is saying. Because if we're honest, we want to read the passage something like this. Yes, Thomas, you need to go to church, but not too much because Ecclesiastes 7 says, don't be overly righteous. I feel like it's saying, Thomas, read your Bible, but don't read your Bible too much. Because if you read your Bible too much, then you're overly righteous. Thomas, you need to be in community. You need to be in a small group. But don't go every week because you don't need to be overly righteous. It's as if it's saying it's cool to be a Christian, but just don't go overboard with it, right? Like, yeah, you should marry a a, a believer, but the standard of walking with God and spiritual maturity, we'll set that to the side. And you know what? Love will make them change. It kind of gives us this mindset of like, you know what, when I'm in church, I've got to be a good Christian. I've got to show up. I've got to say the right things. I've got to be nice, even to people who I don't like. I'm going to be nice to them in the building, and when I leave, I'm going to curse about them in the car. Not, not on the church property, but like when I make that right on Tallahassee, <laughs> I'm just letting them fly, right? I'm just letting them fly. When we think about it, it is, it is a challenge to whether or not I'm a, am I to live this comfortable, non-committed Christian life where I'm a part of it, but not really committed to it, right? Like, I'm going to go to small group, but I'm not going to really be transparent about my sin so that people can hold me accountable, right? Like, I'm going to be involved with other men, but I'm not going to submit to their authority. Like, I want to wear the you know, Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. And I'm going to post scriptures and I'm going to do all those things so that everybody can know that I am a believer. But am I really willing to be committed to Christ? Am I going to be serious about my faith or am I going to stand on the fence? 
am I going to live in such a way where people know that I'm a believer, but God really knows my heart is hard and unwilling to accept the truth? So when we look at the passage, is it that the passage is discouraging what's right? Of course it's not. The passage is not discouraging us from being overly righteous. The passage is discouraging us from the wrong kind of righteousness. If you go back to verse 16, it says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Righteousness and wisdom are never to be things that we make for ourselves. Solomon is saying that you can be so right in your own mind that you are wrong. Say it again. You and I can be so right in our own mind that the scriptures tell us that we're wrong. So yeah, I wanted to jump over chapter number seven. I wanted to finish and go to chapter number eight. But I couldn't do it because I needed to hear a message on how I easily can become self-righteous. I need to hear a good word concerning how I can be right in my own eyes. I need to hear a message about how I needed to be challenged to see right through the eyes of the Lord. Because here's the problem with self-righteousness. Even as I prepared the sermon, it was easy for me to think, man, blank person really needs to hear this message. I thought about calling some people out, but that wouldn't have been helpful this morning. And as I'm talking, as I'm talking, it's easy for you to think, man, blank person really needs to be at church today to hear this message. But that's not helpful. What's most helpful is, God, what are you saying to me in the message? God, how are you trying to speak to me in the message? At this moment, I'm not thinking about my spouse or my kids or my coworker or my neighbor or my parents. At this moment, I'm asking, the self, asking myself the, the personal question, Lord, how are you speaking to me personally? And the next natural follow-up follow is, Lord, what am I going to do about it? See, the issue with self-righteousness is it can be defined as a morality that is based upon what we do not do. That's why it's hard for me to preach this passage because I'm guilty of it. Because in my life, my, my focus shifts away from the Lord. And when my focus shifts away from the Lord, when my focus shifts away from Christ, it's easy for me to compare. It's easy for me to feel self-righteous because I'm not doing nothing bad. Like, I got a little pride. But I'm not beating. I'm not cheating. I ain't killed nobody. I ain't raped nobody. I hadn't done strong arm armor. Like it's, it's easy for me in my own mind to go through these different big checkpoints and say, I hadn't done this, hadn't done this, hadn't done this. I'm good. But self-righteousness keeps us in a really bad place because it keeps us from being where God wants us to be. When I am self-righteous, my focus is not on Christ. When I am self-righteous, my focus is on wickedness from this big perspective of something really bad, something really extravagant, when in reality, I am sinful, I am broken, I am in need of a Savior. When I get to a place in my life where I understand my need for Christ, it humbles me and it causes me to focus more on Jesus. But when I am prideful, when I'm not being humble, when I'm comparing myself, it puts me in a place of pride. It puts me in a place where I'm not willing to hear the truth of the gospel. And it is a very dangerous place because the scriptures tell us in the passage that when you do that, you set yourself up for destruction. 
When you do that, if you live your life that way, if you live your life comparing your life based upon what you don't do, if you live your life in a way that you have created a standard of righteousness for yourself, if you do that, the scriptures tell you, not times, the scriptures tell us very clearly that you are setting yourself up for destruction. So I couldn't, that's why I couldn't skip over the passage this morning. I couldn't skip over the passage because all of us have a tendency to compare ourselves to others, especially in the church, especially in the evangelical church. It's easy for me to get to this place where I'm not doing anything really bad. I haven't really committed any big sins. I haven't done anything that's newsworthy. I hadn't shot up the job. They, they tempted me, but I hadn't shot them up yet, right? Seriously, that's how we think. And when we think that way, it is a reflection of our heart. When we think that way, it is a reflection of something really bad going on internally in our heart. What I love about the Old Testament is it gives us a picture. And in giving us a picture, we can compare the Old Testament to the New Testament because the Old Testament um, presents um, truth, but we can interpret it in a fuller way by looking through the lens of the New Testament. Go with me to Luke chapter number 18. I'm going to read verses 9 through 14 for you. This is Jesus responding to people who compare themselves or measure morality solely based upon what they don't do. Luke 18 verse 9 says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. It's convicting just to read that. He told this parable to those who trusted in themselves. How many of us trust in ourselves? And treated others with contempt. How many of us treat others with contempt? Verse 10 says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than, rather than, than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. One guy went to the Lord, focusing on what he had not done. Thank you, Lord, that I have not stolen. Thank you, Lord, that I, have not, I don't have bad theology. Thank you, Lord, that I have not failed in my marriage. Thank you, Lord, that I don't use drugs. Thank you, Lord, that I haven't been arrested. He didn't focus on the Lord. He was focused on his performance. The other man simply um, went to the Lord asking for mercy. He simply went to the Lord humbly asking for help because his focus was on the right place. Jesus says, is that man who goes down justified right with God because he understood his need for mercy? Verse 16 tells us, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you then destroy yourself? In the text, there is a righteousness that seems right But that kind of righteousness is really wrong. So the passage encourages us to be careful that we do not destroy ourselves 
with a false diagnosis of our own specific righteousness. I'll close with this. The band can come on back up. WebMD is a website that focuses on providing information concerning health and wealth, health and well-being. Uh, it's a great site because you can research a sickness without having to go in to see a doctor. It's also an awful website because you can research a sickness without going, on to see, going in to see a doctor. Each month, over 100 million people visit WebMD. Hear that. A hundred million people a month go to WebMD. And now there are many stories and statistics coming out that are showing how many people are self-diagnosing themselves wrong. There's so many stories of people who, who are trying to come up with home remedies, who are skipping doctor's appointments because they think that they can diagnose themselves. So that we don't get confused with what God has called us to, I want to close with Matthew chapter number 2, verse 17. It's on the screen this morning. Matthew 2, 17 very clearly says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. When Christ came, he came because we are in need of a physician. And as believers, we don't have to try to self-diagnose our own righteousness. We don't have to fake it till we make it or try to be something that we're not. We can go to the great physician who can heal us and change us. So here's my application for us this morning. When you think about these four verses, the first thing that I believe that we are encouraged to do is we are encouraged to accept what God is doing. It's one thing to accept that God is in control, but the passage is inviting us to accept what God has done and surrender to his sovereign will for our life. I want to encourage you to do that today. Secondly, we are encouraged to accept the relationship God is offering. One of the greatest privileges of the Christian life is that our relationship with God is not marked by our performance, is not marked by whether or not you're baptized. Our relationship with God is marked by surrendering to Jesus. It's marked by placing our faith and our trust in Him. And in responding to His Word, God places His Spirit inside of us. We need to accept very clearly that your relationship with God is not based upon your performance. Is based totally upon what Christ has accomplished. And lastly, we need to accept the standard that God has revealed. God has a standard. And yes, we don't preach performance. Yes, we don't preach that you got to earn your way to heaven. But we do preach God's standard. And my standard for righteousness can never replace God's standard for righteousness. When I allow my standard to replace God's standard, the scriptures tell me that I put myself in a position to be destroyed. And as your pastor, I love you too much not to challenge you and to warn you to stay away from destruction. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this time together. God, as we get ready to close, as we get ready to respond in worship, in song, I pray that we would really continue to meditate 
on your word and that you would help us to see your goodness. Help us to see your grace. Help us to see your mercy. God, help us to see that you are for us, that you are with us. And Lord, if there's someone here today that's struggling with the crooked path that you've given them, I pray God that they would trust you. I pray God that they would continue to run on to see what the end will be. I pray God that they would not lose hope. I pray God that they would trust you at a deeper level. God, I thank you for my for our couple that's here today again. I pray that you would bless them as they carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. God, I pray even that you would inspire more people to leave and to go. God, I pray, God, that you would protect them, that you would bless them, that you would provide for them like you never have before. God, I pray, God, when they are discouraged, God, that you would remind them that ultimately they are called to just please you. God, I also pray, God, that you would give them great fruit in their ministry. And I pray, God, that as a result of their ministry, that you would use them to lead many people, many generations, God, people who they would never know and see. God, I pray that you would use their life in eternity, Lord. That people will come to know you. That people will be discipled. That people will grow to a place where they can become maturing and multiplying disciples. God, help us to see that here at Calvary, but help us to see that across the world. We love you, Father, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.